0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: When he's 50 years dead, she dreams she's gone back back to the small white house in the neighborhood that splits the difference between Monterey and Pacific Grove, back to the streets where the cannery workers used to live. She dreams of rising from the horsehair sofa in that bruised hour when the sky is still dark and the bay is still black. She dreams of the place where the old Monterey still exists, or at least the Monterey that's found its way into stories. The last quarter mile of the bike trail, the one that starts in Seaside and then moves up slightly from the coastline before running parallel to Cannery Row, where there's an odd, unintended bit of land marked with the broken shell of an old steel storage cylinder. And here in the weeds and ice plants, in the rusty metal that smells salty in the sun and bloody in the fog, she dreams of everything that has slipped away, everything that will never come back. Then she dreams... Of the descent. Like the cannery workers before her, she aims for the door of a cannery, or better yet, the door of his lab. Instead, she arrives at the aquarium. Inside, it is empty, the barometric dead zone before the rush of the coming crowds, the air abuzz with the clean, nervous smell of salt. She lets the kelp crabs pinch her on purpose. She siphons the pistol shrimp exhibit and leaves her lips on the tube for a second too long so that some of the ocean gets in her mouth. She picks parasites from the accordion folds of a leopard shark's gills and wonders for what seems like the millionth time if breathing water is better than breathing air. She feeds the sea nettles a cup of bright green rotifers and marvels at the orange embrace of the world's most elegant killer. She sees something hovering in the distance, huge and terrible and tentacled and white, And as she wakes, she remembers three things he once tried to teach her. First, that human blood contains the exact same liquid-to-salt ratio as the ocean. Second, that murder can be necessary. Third, that living in a tank is exactly like being in love. Lindsay Hatton is a graduate
0: of Williams College. She holds an MFA from the Creative Writing Program at New York University. She currently resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but was born and raised in Monterey, California, where she spent many fascinating and formative summers working behind the scenes at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Her new book is Monterey Bay. Thank you for joining me, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. This is a book in which layers of time form over one another, like the layers of the ocean that become the sedimentary layers of the rocks that are upheaved. And I'm wondering, as a writer, is that how you experienced time when you came back to Monterey to write this book after spending all those formative summers at the Monterey Bay Aquarium?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, Yeah, I I, I do think there is kind of that, almost a, a sedimentary element to it, as you put it. It's almost like an excavation, coming back with a purpose of of writing about it, not just remembering it for the sake of personal memory, almost trying to verify, trying to fact-check myself, <laughs> you know, to see if the fog was just as foggy as I remembered it or uh, the, the Monterey Pines were just as tall. Yeah, it, w- it was a strange exercise in research that's not really research, an odd place to live in for a while. <laughs> <laughs> this book is... A brazen
0: act of incredible courage this book exists in conversation with one of America's great works of literature, Henry Rowe by John Steinbeck. That's a tall order to take on for your first novel. What made you take on that tall in order first time in the ring
1: i didn't I didn't set out to intentionally aim that high. The the book started out as a collection of interconnected short stories that had to do with many different aspects of Monterey, both in the past and present day. And for some reason, um, the Steinbeck era stuff really rose to the fore as the most fruitful of those stories. And just in the course of of building the book and researching the book, Steinbeck popped up as a wonderful character to explore and an excellent work for me to rediscover. So in hindsight, it seems very brazen. But during the time, it felt like a very natural way to tell a story about this place.
0: Well, that's so interesting. As you were writing these different interconnected but not necessarily parts of a novel stories, did you discover characters that became one character or did you
1: discover themes that became one theme? Absolutely. I mean, there were a lot of characters that merged, even more characters that were um unceremoniously killed off. <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest merges that occurred is there was a time when my, my founding story of the Monterey Bay Aquarium stuck closer to historical fact. And one of the bigger risks I think I take in the novel was the merging of the Margot Fisk character with the character of the real-life founder of the aquarium. For anyone who knows Julie Packard and her crew, Margot Fisk, my protagonist, bears no resemblance <laughs> um, at all. But it was, it was one of those moments of Yeah, that was that was I think one of my biggest creative leaps in the book and a big character consolidation moment.
0: Margot Fisk is such an interesting character. I can't say she's entirely likable. She's not, (laughs) and and she clearly takes some pages, some cues from uh, one of Steinbeck's least likable characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that again, this is a really interesting. process of discovery for you as a writer because you do a great job of getting inside of her head and it's not a friendly place to be so how do you create the theory of mind as it were for somebody who's not really very likable
1: yeah a a question of likability is one that i think has plagued a lot of women writers in particular over the past couple years claire massoud after she wrote the woman upstairs had had some very choice words to say about that you know, about like, do we find Humbert, Humbert, and Lolita likable? Do we find Hamlet likable? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, are we putting more of a burden on our female protagonists? Um, is it kind of the Hillary Clinton effect where we scrutinize her and expect more from her because of gender? I didn't want to do that to my protagonist. I wanted her to be as as bold and brazen, as unlikable, as unfiltered, as any controversial male protagonist in literature. And to me, getting inside her head was was remarkably easy. I personally loved her from the outset. Despite her flaws, I found such freedom and such immense pleasure in figuring her out and seeing the crazy things that she would do. And so my time spent with her was never unpleasant, but I can see how readers might might feel that way. Um, well,
0: I, I in, in thoroughly enjoyed the book, oh, and I, really,
1: I, <laughs> I liked her being with her, but... She's not the most ethical person. In no, the certainly world. not. Yeah, but I think that's something that's been part of her training at the hands of her father. She is raised as his business protege, and he has traveled the world, basically taking a scorched earth approach to industrial renovations and entrepreneurship. And that's the mentality in which she was she was trained, and unleashing that upon a very different sort of philosophy the, the Ed Ricketts, John Steinbeck, which is very humanistic and morality centered I thought that would be a very interesting uh, friction <laughs> to have in that space
0: well, I think it really is i it, I love this the uh, father daughter relationship yeah. here that 's a really great dynamic. You do a good job at that uh, so talk about creating anders fisk who 's kind of we see him he 's like a force of nature, right. something like uh between capitalism and failure embodied mm. in one <laughs> in yeah. one whirling uh a tornado.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I I needed someone, someone who Margot could conceivably come from and push against. Well, I mm. guess I guess that's the role of all parents, really. But I really, I think it needed to be rather, rather extreme in the case of Anders and Margot. She is an exceptional person. It would make sense that she would she would arise from another exceptional person. And for for me, at least, I don't know how other readers feel. I feel like Anders is one of the, the elements of comic relief in the book. There are some things he does that are just so so extreme and some comments he makes that are such eyebrow (laughs) razors. And again, I wanted to have that family lineage be very clear, Um, that connection between him and his daughter. They're more alike than they are different.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and that's, I think, an interesting uh, combination because they also are alike, I think, in that they don't, there are parts of Each of them that they don't understand, and those are actually the strongest parts of them, and that's what's really interesting.
1: Yeah, Um, I love that that element of what's behind the scenes, and I think a lot of the book is built around that that notion of what are the what are the hidden internal forces that result in an external phenomenon or facade. So it's kind of it's like an aquarium. You know, there's a whole behind the scenes world that a visitor never sees. All they see is what those forces create from the outside. And I like to apply that to people too. There is so much that is hidden f- that the, the characters hide from each other that, as you said, are probably the most defining aspects of their personalities and what they'll end up achieving going forward. And I like that mystery. Well, one
0: of the things I think that is you do really well is evoke the period of Cannery Row while nodding at the novel, but not echoing the novel. This is a very dangerous uh, place to tread as a writer. And I'm wondering if you'd discuss, how did you do your research and how did you feed your research into your writing? In other words, did you just like read about some place and then immerse yourself in your own fictional version? Or did you like read about everything and then start putting together the stories?
1: That's a good question. I, I started writing first. Margot Fisk kind of came to me all at once in a flash, and her story kind of took off, and then I started researching parallel to the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting thing about you know evoking Cannery Row in particular, I I do not have any memories of reading it as a young person, which mm-hmm. sounds insane because I was born and raised on this coast. <laughs> but when I realized, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to either read or reread Cannery Row at some point, and I was about three or four drafts to the novel— and it was a major debate I had with myself about whether or not to read it, uh, mm-hmm. because I didn't, want, I didn't want Steinbeck to filter in too, too unconsciously into what I was doing. You know, Of course, I ended up reading it, and I'm glad I did. But yeah, as far as creating my own version of that world, I relied very heavily on primary sources. There are a lot of uh, diaries and journals and essays and letters that both Steinbeck and Ricketts left behind, and even more so than any of the biographies or any of the kind of dissertation style treatments of, of Monterey history. Those letters and journals were really a direct entry point into how those two men might have spoken, how they felt about that specific point in their lives in 1940. And that was just to get a sense of, of, of the tone of not only their speech, but of their worlds and what they might have seen and, and thought about. And then Pat Hathaway also, his, his photography collection, of the era and of that place was invaluable too. To so get a glimpse of of what it actually looked like was very cool.
0: I think one of the things that's interesting about this book is it brings up how interesting the past of Monterey itself so was. There's yeah. so many colorful characters who came through Monterey. Well, Robertson Jeffries and and the Torhouse and and uh, so talk about the part that the general history of Monterey itself plays and and some of the historical figures who inspired you.
1: Absolutely. Well, like I said before, I kind of researched in parallel to the writing. And in the course of that research, there were several moments that— I don't know because I'm a I'm a California hippie by birth. I will call them cosmic affirmations. <laughs> 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 Little discoveries I made about people who contributed to the history of Monterey that seemed to indicate to me that I was on the right path, especially as far as Margot's character was concerned. So one of those one of those discoveries in my research was a woman named Julia Platt who was the mayor um, of Pacific Grove. I believe in 1931. Um, she was 73 years old when she became mayor. Right. She um, was
0: during the time when. Uh, there are a whole colony of yeah. weird fiction writers there i think totally. clark, clark ashton smith was living there mm-hmm. at that time
1: yeah it was um yeah an extremely vibrant time in the area and she she had had a, a history of being a a scientist activist general public nuisance some people say but she was elected to mayor and ended up spearheading what would later become the monterey bay national marine sanctuary that was all kind of her Idea. Another cool thing she would do is when the bath point at Levers Point tried to make that beach private, she would go down every night with a hatchet, chop down the fence. They would rebuild the fence. She'd go back down, chop it down. She was merciless when it came to her view of the bay and how she thought it should be. And I saw in her so many echoes of my protagonist, Margot Fisk. And then another another person that arose during my research that was also very Margot-like was Carol Steinbeck, John's first wife.
0: Whose thought... Constantly threatening to uh, <laughs> divorce
1: Oh Well, that, in 1940, in, in the <laughs> Spoke, book, yeah, yeah, that was when their divorce was about to be final. They did a last-ditch effort to save the marriage when they journeyed to the Sea of Cortez, mm-hmm. um, the journey from which that book uh, was inspired. But yeah, at that point, the marriage was pretty much over. And it was a tragic ending to a marriage that was a match of wits and talents. Carol was John's best editor. She thought of the titles for The Grapes of Wrath and of Mice and Men, but she was a strong personality, often a little bit too much for John. And I think I just imagined to myself, well, he's in the midst of divorcing this real pistol of a woman. He seeks refuge in Ed Ricketts' lab only to find the 15-year-old version of that waiting for him. <laughs> 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 and I think a lot of his, his cantankerousness in my book is based on, yeah, his, I, I, th- I think Margot Fiskis is exactly who he would not have wanted to find there. and therefore might have based a character on in one of his later books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I think that you do so well is to show without ever telling the relationship between Ricketts and Steinbeck by virtue of the relationship between Ricketts and Carol. And I think that uh, what you do is by virtue of absence. So I'd like you to talk about like writing by absence, by not saying things, by leaving stuff out because you do a great job of leaving enough out so when you put something in it really matters.
1: Oh, yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, writing by that's kind of there there's a lot of that in the book. Not only with the portrayal of those relationships as you mentioned, but an absence that really comes to mind to me when I think about the book is the absence of mothers. My mom was, was sick and ended up dying during the course of the time that I wrote this book. And it was something that I wasn't ready to write about in words. <laughs> but as you said, I reread the book now, and the absence of motherhood is all over it.
0: Oh, no, um, absolutely. I didn't know, and I'm sorry to hear oh, that. But oh, it's, thanks, be- but it's a beautiful tribute, though.
1: I, I, I hope so, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know, in the course of writing the book, not only did I lose my mother, but I became a mother myself, twice over. <laughs> and there are a lot of references to the aquarium as a womb or to the maternal quality of of what aquarists do for a living and all the caretaking and how confusing that is when it's also interlinked with death and violence. So yeah, the, the, that was an area in which I think absence did speak stronger than presence in the book.
0: I think that um, when we first meet Margot in this Really, pretty scary. Well, we meet her first in a brief moment in 1998, and I, I like these layers of time because 1998 is pretty long ago. That's yeah. a historical novel at this point. Almost. <laughs> so, uh, why did you pick those particular points in time?
1: I like the notion of of those two inflection points in a person's life. One's teenage years, especially. You know, that's a, that's a transition point into a different into a different time of life, and then when we we see Margot in 1998, she's 73 years old, and that's an inflection point too into more advanced old age and the kind of personal reckoning that that entails. And I I liked seeing her at two potential moments of decision.
0: One of the major characters in this book is obviously Ed Ricketts, and you have a lot to work with him because he himself left a lot of writings there's a yeah. lot written about him and he's obviously a major character in cannery row so you're triangulating between a lot of different things and i think you do a great job of getting his presence and his voice right set in the reader's minds and right and you know maybe a little bit different from what steinbeck did so that's an interesting process. And you I think you lay it on in layers just like a, the the way time is laid on in this book.
1: Yeah, Ricketts was um, such a fascinating character to develop. It's, it's so interesting because one of the initial controversies surrounding Cannery Row when it was first published was its representation of Ricketts. Ed himself was not entirely thrilled by the way he was portrayed. And it was interesting for me to go back and, and wonder if I could in some way fix that. The answer ended up being no. That's not my job as a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> so I, all I did try to do when it came down to it was, was represent a fair three-dimensional portrayal of him at a very specific moment in time. And add to that my own lasting personal affection for the man. I knew him as a scientist before I knew him as a character in fiction. Um, when I started volunteering at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, that's when I first learned about him and how the aquarium's exhibits are designed based on his pioneering ecological discoveries and his organization of uh, plants and animals based on where they live as opposed to what they look like. So I, would al- I had always had a deep respect of, of him as a thinker, um, and I think that is, um, that's what guided my portrayal of him in the book and, you know, added into that the biographical elements that I learned and my own personal discomfort about, you know, what might have been um, his sexual proclivities and how those might have been excused in favor of, of the perception of him and rightfully so of, as a genius.
0: You started working at Monterey Bay Aquarium during your own formative years. Yeah. H- how old were you when you started?
1: Um, I fift- uh, was I was fifteen, same age as Margot. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, but you weren't working for a wage then. I think in California, it's sixteen, right? So yeah, you were I was. A I it was a
1: volunteer. It was a high school volunteer program.
0: So, uh, were you there with uh, your peers? Were you there alone? Or uh, and I'm wondering how because when we meet Margot, she's really pretty much alone mm-hmm. and and thrust into the Ed Ricketts lab right wounded and and, and injured and Ricketts lab is just a terrible chaos <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering uh, what your impression was of Monterey Bay where you when when you started working at the aquarium
1: when I started working there it was part of um, a, a high school internship program and there are a lot of us mm mm-hmm. um, but for some reason, it always felt like a very solitary endeavor, and I still don't know how to explain this. Maybe it's because my, my ensuing experiences there and my other internships and jobs were more, were more solitary, and it's all kind of you know, being conflated in my head. But when, when I see myself as a young person at the aquarium, it's alone in front of a tank. It's not with a lot of people. And I think the behind-the-scenes areas of the aquarium are very much like that. It's a very solitary, contemplative kind of place. And I remember always feeling it was a jarring experience to walk back out into the public viewing galleries and having so many people, you know, versus the quiet of what's happening behind the tanks. But yeah, my my jobs there really they varied incredibly. I mean, I had... I wore a sea otter costume and entertained visitors in line. I wrote some of the visitor programs that were performed to guests. I interacted with guests to do educational programming. I cleaned the tanks. I went on collecting trips. Um, I have no idea why they offered me so much access, but they did. <laughs> well, you made use of
0: every single thing you did in I this hope so. book, yeah. <laughs> okay, and
1: and good use.
0: You know, <clears throat> one of the things that that always interests me in novels is this idea of what's called theory of mind. And in this case, where we experience it most, is in Margot's attempts to understand Ed, Mm. who is pretty mysterious to her. and uh, and So I think it's interesting. You have created a character who's sharp and smart and absolutely irreverent of any kind of, protocol mm-hmm. that's been impro- in fact she sees something like protocol and she's likely to deliberately <laughs> violate it <just> because <laughs> <Right>. that's, that's <laughs> her inclination um, talk about creating that character's understanding of this genius who is obviously quite flawed in many ways mm-hmm.
1: well I think it's a genius that she has absolutely no idea how to categorize and that's the initial impulse of the attraction. I think she's used to things being more traditionally structured. And then and then Ricketts comes and blows that out of the water. And you know I meant I meant that to be as kind of a nod to the work that he was literally doing in the tide pools at the time, rearranging the known ways of organizing and categorizing into a very very re- revolutionary format that would later be embraced, you know, in the, in the form of marine ecology. But she, much like the rest of the world at the time, couldn't Quite get him couldn't quite understand him and I think that's also a challenge that Steinbeck faced to be honest I think there's a reason that Ricketts was Steinbeck's muse and Steinbeck spent so much so many page numbers trying to work out who Ed Ricketts was and what he meant he was a a curious and like you said before a really ingenious character but not one that anyone really had a grasp on I don't think much less Margot
0: you know, I think you do a great job of excising uh, anachronism and not just in terms of the technology or the stuff that happens, but where it's most dangerous in perceptions. Mm. Uh, you are talking about Ricketts, and I think this is one of the places where your book really shines so brightly, is that from our perception, we understand that he, how right on he is about everything. Yeah. And it seems to us what to him is, a, is what his amazing discovery is our everyday understanding.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And so to purge reality of what is our everyday understanding must have been a challenge for you as a writer. Did you have to go back and like re- uh, um, adjust your trajectory as you wrote the book just to make sure that you didn't put anything in or perceptions yeah, in Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it made it easier that, you know, Margot, the, the woman whose eyes were seeing all this through, she's a novice when it comes to all this information. So her being largely ignorant of all that was a good entry point for me. You know, I, I didn't assume any kind of expertise there, so I was able to, to kind of um, clean my own slate <laughs> as a result. <laughs> but also Rickett's bio, um, biographies indicated that yeah, everyone was kind of confused by him, didn't know what to do with him. There, w- there was a funny interplay between him and the um, the Hopkins Marine Station back in the day. Mm-hmm. They used his his lab catalogs in their coursework because they were so detailed and provided great images and explanations of all the species. But they didn't, they were like, but why are you doing it this way instead of that way? And um, uh, it, that interchange struck me as as so interesting and fun and just so indicative of the, the role he played in Cannery Row at the time. He was by no means elevated in the scientific community. But there were, but there were some. There were, there were a select few who sought to understand him in the way Margot sought to understand him, even at that time.
0: In this book, uh, Margot is his illustrator. Who was mm-hmm. his illustrator? In, in
1: I think a, a man named Richie Lovejoy did a lot of the work. Mm. I think in Between Pacific Tides, he did a lot of the sketches. There was also a photographer whose name I forget that also did a lot of those.
0: The parts set in the present have this kind of really, they seem very dark, yeah. and really um, disturbing almost. And, and there's a lot of uh, visionary writing in the the present places that sometimes grows out in the past. Mm. So talk about just creating that aspect, that feeling of overwhelming darkness. I get as it happens, you know, at the age of seventy three. Uh, you may be healthy enough to jump off the side of a boat in scuba gear, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not sure Margot was. I think she thought she was, <laughs> right. and, then, uh, and then reality caught up with her. But yeah, I um, like I was saying before those those moments inflection of inflection in a lifetime. You know, the, those segments in 1998 happened to coincide with the 50th anniversary of Rickett's death, which which leads her to not necessarily believe literally literally that she is being haunted by his ghost but to feel but to feel the resurgence of of an old darkness and an old desire you know no matter how hard she's worked to to overcome the unfortunate things that that happened to her as a young person on Cannery row there's always a moment of reckoning and i think those mom- moments of reckoning are occurring in 1998 and i i personally loved the idea of juxtaposing A dark night of the soul, so to speak, with um, a very bright, happy, beautiful, well-known tourist destination. (laughs) Um. (laughs) And uh, and some happy celebrations, too. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Now, um, it strikes me, though, for all the happiness we were just mentioning, this is a book that is really steeped in regret. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I love regret. I think it's a really interesting emotion. I, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> Underappreciated in the world these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about developing a, a trajectory, as mm. it were, for regret in this book, because that's kind of where, in a sense, what the, one of the driving forces.
1: Yeah, I think, and I think that's one of the the major differences between young Margot and old Margot. You know, fifteen year old Margot. I don't think she can anticipate a day when she will regret anything. I don't think that's even on her on her personal horizon. She moves through the world as if, you know, <laughs> um, it's always going to be like it is, and her actions will not have consequences other than those that will further her own ambitions. And then 73-year-old Margot still has a lot of the very ambitious, scorched earth mentality of young Margot, but she's also living very much with regret and understanding that that is a part of growing older and living a life. And I think that's one of the things that troubles her so much about a whole lifetime of being unable to come to terms with what her childhood meant. And hopefully, you know, the final scene of the book in which a spectacular release occurs. I didn't want it to to be too overtly symbolic, but I would hope that would be I don't know, uh, a positive moment in her life where some of that regret might might lift and make room for, for more productive things.
0: Well, one of the things she has no reason to regret is the many pages of snappy dialogue <laughs> that she has with Ricketts and, and Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. It's, you're putting words into the mouths of American literary icons, American characters created by American literary icons. Uh, talk about doing that. I mean, when you set that stuff down on the page, mm-hmm. that must feel a little bit haunted yourself.
1: Um, man, you know, it was so much fun to write that dialogue that I didn't... Um, I, I rarely paused to think about about consequences i sound like Margot now <laughs> it was so i'm much, not surprised yeah me neither um but again through my my reading of their letters and their their journals and their essays the voices of steinbeck and ricketts were so clear to me and having them talk to each other was some of the most fun i've ever had writing and then getting Margot in the mix was just even more fun it steinbeck is such a good writer but one of the things he's not great at is women. I don't think a woman in Steinbeck's books ever talked like Margot talks. And it was so fun for me to have Steinbeck come up against a character like Margot who who says a lot and who thinks a lot of controversial thoughts um and takes Steinbeck to task on what perc- and on what she perceives as his weaknesses. It was a lot of fun and it, honestly I had to when it came down to it I I wanted to fact check myself about some of the more controversial things they might have said. Literally everything they say in that book, I have um, somewhere in a letter or a journal entry that I can point back to and say, "Yeah, this is this has a root in their own in their own words." So, yeah, I covered my butt in that regard. I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that's that's impressive. Uh, yeah, so that was fun.
0: Uh, so there could be uh, in in a sense, uh, you could at some point. In the near future, release the hypertext annotated version of this, which
1: would I pull could, back. Yes, <laughs> I could. I could turn it into pale fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
0: I think that for me, one of the most enjoyable aspects of this was the to see what happens when you get you set up the relationship between Ricketts and Margot and then bring Steinbeck in uh, because Steinbeck is—he's he flat-out jealous. Yeah. And I think that that was—you handled that so well, so subtly, but yet it's it's something that we as reader go, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Steinbeck and Ricketts had an extraordinarily unique friendship. You know, wh- one of the things I was unable to find when I was researching— were letters that were written between the two of them. I may, there may be a treasure trove of those somewhere that I don't know about, but the speculation is that when Steinbeck broke into Ricketts' lab after his death, he burned a lot of the correspondence or writings that might have put Ricketts in an unfavorable light or that might have been used as, quote, blackmail material, unquote. And it's easy for me to believe that you know, some of those things that might have been burnt might have been the more personal correspondence between Steinbeck and Ricketts, because their their relationship was it was passionate and it was fraught. And I, you know, I have no reason to believe it ever went beyond the platonic. Um, but there was a connection there that um, that wasn't just what we think of as a casual friendship. Ricketts really got into Steinbeck's head, and his approval was very, very important to him and any interruption in that connection especially at a personally delicate time for steinbeck i'm sure would have been a big deal
0: you when you set out to write a novel like this you have to make some difficult decisions mm-hmm. which is what parts of history you're going to adhere to and what parts of history you're going to ignore right were those decisions made by and large in advance or as you composed
1: a little bit of both you know the big you know the, the big place where I go off script in a big way is the aquarium's founding story. And you know that was a decision that was made gradually and very organically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know during during my childhood on cannery row, and, and and even today, I always I knew I knew the real founding history of the aquarium, but whenever I was on that coastline, I could feel like an alternate founding legend somewhere in the ether, you know. I, I'm like, there has to be some kind of love and tragedy and revenge. There there has to be something deeper, even if it might be invented. And I had always wanted to write about that. And this book was a glorious opportunity to do so. And Margot ended up being a wonderful vehicle. And I know the book bu- the book does occupy a really strange space between historical fiction and speculative fiction and literary fiction. I think it's kind of a mashup of genres that can understandably confuse readers. But for me, I, I've always loved books that um, that take history as a jumping-off point. I love when I'm reading to see where the writer is playing with that edge. Um, E.L. Doctorow does that beautifully. Peter Carey is another writer that does that. David Mitchell. I like feeling confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I'm writing, it's even more fun. Um, and I think... Um, it adds energy and freshness to the narrative is the way I see it. So I'm hoping other readers might see it that way too.
0: Well, I mean, fiction is, in after all, it's a business about lying. It's yeah, not about yeah. telling the truth. <laughs> or it's about telling the truth in a more concentrated emotional form. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: The emotional arcs in this book are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And what interests me is that as modern uh, here in the 21st century uh, the, some of the things that happen are you know fairly serious deals mm-hmm. very serious deals and back then they weren't and wouldn't have been so you're dealing with a kind of a schism in the reader the reader my is reading something and thinking wow this is this is serious. And the characters are not so phased by it. And that's an interesting disconnect. So mm-hmm. could you talk about that, you know, creating and working with that disconnect where the characters are seeing something and accepting it as every day and the reader's going, "Oh, wait, 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 that's, that's over the top.
1: Um, can you give me an example?
0: Well, <laughs> for example, I mean, the way Ricketts, uh,
1: just the uh, the plausibility of a fifteen year old girl.
0: Yes, Margot. Yeah, yeah, the
1: way, yeah, and uh, and a man three times her age. Right. Uh, being in cahoots, as it were. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that one. That that one required. I I wanted to make sure that I was on the right side of. Of plausibility on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I,
0: I think you pull it off.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And, and its I don't know if you've read The Log from the Sea of Cortez. That's the, 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 the record of the journey that Steinbeck and Ricketts took um, to Baja, California. And it's mostly a relatively happy-go-lucky collecting journal. But at the very end, in, um, in editions that were published after Ricketts' death, there is this fascinating appendix called About Ed Ricketts in which Steinbeck goes on for pages and pages and pages about everything about ed ricketts mostly about his sex life and there's this one this one sentence where he says when i first met ed ricketts he was engaged in the scholarly and persistent process of deflowering a young girl and it goes into how ed ricketts his sole interest at that time was um was taking the virginity of a high school student and, of course, my ears perked up, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, that, was, that, that was one of those things where, yeah, I was, I, I was worried about the, the reader coming with me on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I had at least the anecdotal historical basis to make that leap. And I think Margot's character is such that that relationship, I personally can buy that relationship, and I hope the reader can too.
0: Well, yeah, no, I think you do a, a good job at creating Margot. Her ability to deal with Rickets in the way she does stems from the way she has the relationship she has with her father. Yeah.
1: Her main role as her father's daughter is is devil's advocate in a lot of ways. Anders relies on Margot to to help him with his his business efforts, to punch holes in his plans, to be another pair of eyes um, on on very complicated infrastructures, and I think that's Margot. That's how she initially approaches Ricketts, too, is, as kind of a puzzle to be solved, and not in a gentle way. She's very aggressive about attempting to reveal his flaws, to paint him as someone who is unworthy, and it comes to her as a great surprise that he turns out to be the opposite. But yeah, her, her, her relationship with him is, is um, there, there, there's a lot of friction there, and I think that's the same is with her father. That's what, That's the way she's used to interacting with not only authority figures, but, but loved ones.
0: Well, that's one of the things, that is that her relationship with her father makes her relationship with Ricketts and with Steinbeck, whom she uh, immediately sizes up and decides he's only going to work if she takes him as an equal. Right. And I think that her ability to be an equal with her father makes her... Uh, equality in these other relationships more plausible.
1: Yeah, and I think that's um, that's a function of the fact that she has never—the parameters of her upbringing were so specific and bizarre that there was never anyone around to tell her otherwise. Mm-hmm. Her father always expected that of her, so that's the way she moves through the world. Yeah, it, it, ma- it would make perfect sense for someone like that to, um, yeah, to not take second place to, uh, to anyone in her life <laughs> <laughs> and to uh, claw her way up there no matter what. <clears throat> uh, I
0: think you do a good job at showing, too, the kind of chaos that was present both in Monterey in terms of all the ethnicities who mm-hmm. were there mixed up and all of them in pursuit of various crops and seafloor and fauna that just they immediately would just go through like a yeah. like locusts and not figure it out. So talk about creating that sense of chaos without... Succumbing to chaos in your writing?
1: Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question. Well, I mean the um the structure of the novel is very much determined by Margot's personality, and that is not a chaotic personality. Mm. That is a um that is a very analytical personality. So the order there I think was very much reflective of her being the guiding force. But I did want I did want an undercurrent of chaos. And you're right about those themes of that. That almost inevitable devastation being something that's always looming. There are a lot of historical examples I give in the book, and then, you know, now that we are in a very specific phase of this community's existence, you know, I think it's something that's important to look at too. The aquarium is obviously a wonderful institution and the community is a is a beautiful place and a lot of people come visit, but is there is there a downside to that? Is there a point at which it gets to be unsustainable? in much the same way as the sardine fishery became unsustainable. In what ways are we currently reaping the bounty of this area? And can we pull ourselves back when it starts to look like it's too much? And I think those are some of Margot's concerns as an older woman and the the thought of herself having contributed to what might be a snowballing sense of doom.
0: Uh, You did a good job of capturing the ethnicities, the Italians and the Chinese. Did you uh, find primary sources for that, or was that just You know, that was mostly
1: as a result of some really fascinating um, books. There was one called Shaping the Shoreline by Connie Chang, um, and she goes very deeply into mostly the Asian communities um, that also shaped the history of the area, but have kind of since been written out of the textbooks. And then there's another... Uh, oh man, I'm not going to remember it. I think, I, I want to say Elizabeth McKibben, but don't quote me on that, who looked a lot into the, um, the Italian fishing communities and how they were almost exclusively matriarchal. The men would go out on the boats for months at a time, and the women were left to do literally everything else, not only just um, you know the raising of families and household maintenance, but buying property, opening businesses, really ensuring that on the ground in Monterey, that Italian community had thriving commerce. Um, and and that, that was a, a very fascinating uh, discovery for me because I never knew that was the case. Um, but I, th- I think a lot, there's been a lot of investigation into how the cannery row we perceive as a result of Steinbeck's fiction is very, very different from what cannery row actually entailed. And while my book isn't, it doesn't explore by any means the full ethnic diversity of the area. I think it does hint at it a little bit, and maybe it will be a job for another writer down the road to pursue the Chinese or the Japanese or the Portuguese or the Italian points of view from a fictional perspective.
0: You do also a great job of giving us a sense of the landscape in Monterey, which is spectacular. Yeah. Talk about writing about the spectacular,
1: it's, it's, not, it's a challenging deal. It is a challenging deal, and I don't, um, you know, description for description's sake can only take you so far until you bore the reader senseless. <laughs> so I, want, I, I wanted to make sure that when I was describing um, the physical landscape of the place, it was in service of, of something about the story, and then also I wanted to put it through Margot's eyes. And a lot, I think a lot of the darkness in the book is in the physical description of the place. The fog, the mildew smell, um, the darkness of those trees against that white sky. It can be argued that Margot is a, is a depressed character, and she would view even the most gorgeous landscape through that lens. And to be perfectly honest, growing up around here, I always had a, a kind of gothic sense of the landscape. Those rocks are sharp. Those cliffs are tall. You know, you you, you drive down Big Sur, and it's um, sometimes impossible to keep from imagining your car plummeting. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's not only a beautiful landscape; it's a um, it's a hazardous one in a lot of ways. Um, and I wanted to pay homage to that that element of it. It's not it's not a cozy place. I live in a cozy place now. New England has has pretty pretty benign um, natural features. Um, and then I come back here to ca- California to this specific coast, and I'm like, "Geez, this is a, a mind-blowing spot." There is no question in my mind that you know writers like Henry Miller and Robinson Jeffers felt the same kind of friction between uh, beauty and terror that led to a lot of their evocations of this landscape.
0: And uh, one thing I have, was that house that you describe, is that a real house?
1: Um, no, it's a composite house. Um, but it, yeah, it was it was one of the many many houses that were built during the the canning boom. You know, the higher on the hill you lived, the richer you were. Um, so the Agnelli family in the book lived really really high up, and then Margot and her father are mid hill, where some of the Italian and Portuguese canners might have lived.
0: There are many moments of prose in this book where it becomes visionary and almost evokes elements of the fantastic. And I'm wondering if that was because you found some part of the landscape or some part of your story fantastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely both. Um, I mean, the landscape is is so evocative of, of what I can only call the supernatural at times. And then as far as the story I was trying to tell, I think there's always kind of an epic visionary nature to love, especially first love, um, and how people end up end up dealing with that. And then, you know, also an element, too, is just that's, that's the kind of writer that I am. I do, I do have a visionary and um, almost fantastical element to how I like to perceive the world through prose. And it's fun for me to go there. It's one of the, it's one of the many ways in which I, I tried to spice up the straight historical fictional elements of the book with a little, bit of, a little bit of genre bending, so to speak.
0: I've been speaking to Lindsay Hatton. Her new novel is Monterey Bay. Thank you for joining me, Lindsay.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.